Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn today to start to uh, John chapter 3. And, of course, John 3.16, it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Many times people, you know, they'll know that verse and not know the rest of the chapter. And Go up to verse 10. Here Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a, a, a prominent person. And uh, Nicodemus, because he's afraid for his position, he comes to Christ at night. And Christ speaks to him about being born again. Um, And in verse 10, uh, it says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? And Nicodemus, for all of the religious instruction that he had received, didn't know the, the spiritual things of God's word. And in verse 11, Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Verse 13 says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then, he, and then verse 16 that we read at the beginning. But he says that he was going to be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is uh, what, what Christ was referring to here as he spoke of lifting up, Moses lifting up that serpent in the wilderness. And it's uh, just a, a really a powerful picture of what Christ was going to accomplish on the cross. Let's turn back and look at the account that, that uh, Christ was referring to in Numbers. Go back to Numbers chapter 21. It begins in verse 5. It says, And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now, if you remember, the light bread they're talking about there is the manna from heaven that God gave them to eat that God said was angel's food. And you see how they're not even satisfied with that, right? And and they complain about not having any water. And, of course, you know, if you read the whole account of the Exodus, you see that the various times where God just miraculously provided that water for them, right? And, and, uh, you know, for all their complaining, God always came through. They They never went without. They never lacked. And um, here, you see, they don't even they don't you don't even like it. Says our soul loatheth this light bread. And so, verse six, it says the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, "We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that He take away the serpents from us." And Moses prayed for the people. 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass, that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And then it goes on to describe the the, uh, journeyings there of the children of Israel. Now, this account here, if you were just reading through the Old Testament or reading through the book of Numbers, it just sort of, sort of appears there out of, you know, kind of out of nowhere. But you see how Christ refers to it uh, in, our, in our text there in John 3. He refers back to this account, and he speaks of it really as being a type of what was going to happen with him. And, of course, we understand that when he was speaking of being lifted up, it was not of being glorified, but it was of being lifted up on the cross of Calvary and put to death. He instructs Moses to make a serpent of brass. Now, brass throughout the Bible um, is, is symbolic of judgment. Uh, think, for instance, in the layout of the tabernacle and the temple, the, the altar that was outside in the courtyard where you would bring your sin offerings and other burnt offerings was an altar of brass because it was a place of judgment. That as well symbolized that judgment upon sin and that sacrifice that was dying for the sin of the offerer was offered on an altar of brass. And when you, when you come to these accounts in Scripture, realize that God had a purpose in what he instructed Moses to do. He had a purpose in instructing Moses to make this serpent, and, and it's a serpent, not some other creature or some other object, and to make it of brass, because brass means something. It symbolizes something. Uh, when you think about what the serpent would symbolize, of course, the very first place where a serpent appears in Scripture is there at the Garden of Eden, and that serpent, that old serpent, is the devil, right? And so the serpent all throughout Scripture represents the devil, it represents sin, And so here's this brass serpent. And the way this worked is that these fiery serpents that were coming through the camp, if you were bitten, these were poisonous snakes, that if they bit you, normally you would die. Right? The the effect, the, the, uh, the bite of that serpent was something that brought death. But Moses sets up this brass serpent in the middle of the camp, and so it's a, you know, they're being afflicted by serpents, and so he sets up an image of a serpent. And they look to that image, and when they, when they look to that image in faith, that, that bite of that snake doesn't affect them anymore, and they survive, and they're well. And, um, you know, this, this uh, was not something where they were worshiping this serpent. Cer- certainly the Lord had told them not to make graven images, to bow down to them to worship. Although you know that eventually, in Israel's history, they did come to worship this brass serpent. Uh, they, you know, they didn't get rid of this thing after, after they were done with the Exodus. They kept it around, and, and eventually, later on, uh, the Israelites would come and worship it as, a, as an idol. Here, the Lord's not instructing them to worship the serpent, but rather, looking upon that serpent is, a, is an act of obedience to God. Now, when you start to think about how, how that could be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it, at first there may be some difficulty. I mean, how could this serpent, this picture of sin in the Bible, how could that represent Christ? I mean, certainly Christ is drawing a clear correlation between this serpent and himself when he says in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. When he says, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, he's saying in the same way. He's saying his lifting up is the, is the fulfillment of 
this, this picture back here in the Old Testament. Well, how could a serpent, how could the, this, this symbol of sin and of Satan ever be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who was without sin? Now, the answer, of that, the answer to that has to do with what God was accomplishing in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when he speaks of his lifting up, he's not speaking of being glorified. There certainly will come a day when the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. In fact, he's been glorified by the Father already. There will come a day where, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's already been glorified by God the Father, but there's got to come a day when, when he's glorified uh, before all men. And, you know, you'll either, you'll either confess that Jesus is Lord willingly, out of faith, or you'll confess that Jesus is Lord out of compulsion. One way or another, everybody is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That day will come. But that's not what Christ is talking about when he talks about being lifted up. Uh, rather, he's talking about being lifted up um, on the on the cross of Calvary, and you know that that lifting up, um, that's you know we could do we could do a whole study just on that through the scripture. You you remember you remember the the story of Joseph uh, in the Old Testament, and how Joseph was in prison, and there was the the butler and the baker there, and they each had dreams. And he told them, if you, if you read what he said to each of them, both of them, he told them that on the third day they were going to be lifted up. But one of them was lifted up to, to be restored to his position. The other one was lifted up to be hanged, right? And so, so even there's an example that that word lifted up can mean two things. And Christ was speaking about, about uh, his death. So again, how, how can the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, be pictured by a brass serpent. Now, first of all, that brass represents judgment. And certainly in Christ's death, he was being judged. He was being judged. Um, he was being judged of man, but, uh, you know, man, uh, even the people involved in the trial, knew that there was no real cause of death in him. But even beyond that, he was being judged of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was being judged of God, not for his own sin, but for the sin of the world. And that's why you see Christ portrayed as this brass serpent. The serpent, the sin. Realize that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross of Calvary, when he hung there on the cross of Calvary, he, he, you know, he went to the cross certainly as the, you know, the lamb without spot or blemish, but realize he took upon him the sin of mankind. And so what a fitting picture to represent Christ on the cross where he actually became guilty for our sin, this picture of the serpent. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And notice what it says about Christ here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, For he, and that's God the Father, hath made him, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, for he hath made him, notice, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, there it speaks of God the Father making Christ to be sin. If a person could actually become sin, sin incarnate, sin in, you know, in physical form, that's what Jesus Christ was on the cross of Calvary. 
He was made to be sin. You ever think about that and, and you know, just what that means? I mean, here is Christ. Here is the second member of the Godhead who was incarnated in human flesh in, in such a way that he did not have the sin nature that we have, who lived his entire life without sin. And yet on the cross of Calvary, he's made to be sin. In a sense, when you, when you think of that, you know, in terms of justice, what, a, what an unjust thing that Jesus Christ would be made to be sin on the cross of Calvary. That he, that lamb without spot, without, without blemish, was made to be sin. And yet, he did that willingly because it had to be done in the plan of God for salvation. Sin had to be paid for. And so Jesus Christ, that lamb without spot, is made to be sin on the cross of Calvary. And that's why he can be represented by that serpent and by a brass serpent that represents judgment. You know, there's a, there's a, a problem in just focusing on the physical pain that Christ suffered. Now, certainly Christ suffered physical pain on the cross of Calvary, right? The, the beating that the Romans gave to him and that method of crucifixion was a terrible, terrible method of execution. Uh, it was, it was a, just, a, you know, just a brutal form of torture and death. But realize that that was not the worst part of what Christ suffered. Go, go back to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22. And, you know, Psalm 22 is a psalm that was written by David back in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before Christ was incarnated hundreds of years before his death and burial and resurrection. And yet it describes in great detail the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, even down to to just minor details. Uh, Psalm 22 begins by saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you may remember, Christ uttered those words from the cross of Calvary. He, He uttered them in Aramaic. And the people who heard him didn't really understand what he was saying. But what he was doing was he was quoting the beginning of Psalm 22. Now that's a, that's a cue to you as a Bible student to go back and read Psalm 22 and say, why would he be quoting that? Why does he quote that first sentence of Psalm 22? And why would Jesus Christ say to God the Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And again, it comes back to the fact that he was made to be sin. And God the Father, in his in his justice and in his holiness, his response to sin, to Christ becoming sin, could not be for him to, to you know, continue in that same relationship with Christ that he had had, but rather he had to respond to that with judgment. He had forsaken Christ. God the Father had to forsake his son in order to judge his son for sin. And so Christ says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. Notice what he says, but I am a worm and no man a reproach of men, and despised of the people. Now, um, there he refers to himself as a worm. And, you know, it's interesting that he uses that, that wording there. And, and again, 
This is written by David, but you see it's really the words of Christ. Right? He refers to himself there as a worm. Well, what, is a, what does a worm mean in Scripture? That worm is a, is a description of sinful, unbelieving man in hell suffering the judgment of God. And that's how Christ describes himself on the cross. He says, I'm a worm and no man. And the, uh, the, the specific worm, by the way, that it's referring to was a, a worm that was used. They would crush this worm and get a red dye from it. And that red dye they would use to dye cloth. And, um, and it was a, a scarlet, you know, a scarlet type color, very bright red that they would get from this worm. And again, interesting that Christ would refer to himself in those terms on the cross of Calvary where his red blood was shed. Of course, his red blood does not make something scarlet, but it cleanses white as snow. And just interesting, all of the symbolism in these passages as you, as you compare these things. He says, I'm a worm and no man, associating himself with, with those sinners uh, who suffer the judgment of God in hell. He says, he's a reproach of man and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, but let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And when you read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, they say almost exactly that. Uh, Verse 9, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, cast lots upon my vesture. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. And, and he goes on and you see the hope of resurrection as well in that passage. That's what he's talking about when he's calling there on the Lord to deliver him. That's the, the resurrection of Christ when he was raised from that grave, when he was delivered from that death. And you see how, how the Lord here really, again, even though this is written down by David, it's really David writing down the words of the Lord Jesus Christ or the thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross prophetically. And you see how he mentions specific details of the crucifixion, parting, the, parting his garments, piercing his hands and feet. Um, the, uh, he mentions his, his thirst. You know, and remember how he was, he was thirsty on the cross and they gave him vinegar to drink. Uh, you see these specific details hundreds of years in advance of what was going to be accomplished there on the cross of Calvary. And, and you see how Christ, in his thoughts there, associates himself with sinful man. Even though the Lord Jesus Christ never committed a sin, he never told a lie, he never, um, you know, never, never, uh, stole, never did any of those things, never committed any sin, and yet on the cross of Calvary, he was made to be sin. He became sin. Though he was without sin, uh, as Second Corinthians 5 said, he knew no sin, but he was made 
to be sin for us. And he paid the price that God's justice required for our sin. Now, you know, if we're to pay our, that sin ourselves, we have to become that worm, that, that uh, lost sinner in hell where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Someone who rejects the gospel, refuses what Christ accomplished on the cross for them. That's what, that's what they have to, to look forward to. And it's when, when a person chooses to reject the gospel, what they are choosing is they're, they're choosing to pay for that sin themselves. But you see the, the opportunity that's there in Christ. Because 2 Corinthians 5 says that he was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That, that we, even though we are sinful, Christ was not sinful and he was made to be sin. We are sinful and yet God can make us righteous. You see, it's just the, just the reverse. Where Christ knew no sin and was made to be sin, we do no sin, but God can make us to be righteous in Christ. And because Christ has paid the debt, because Christ has paid for the sin... The, the offer in the gospel is that, that all those who believe have that applied to them so that God views their sin as already being paid for in Christ. Uh, go, to, go to Romans chapter 4. When you consider all of that, it, it just completely does away with this idea that you could ever work for your own salvation. Because what could you add to what Christ accomplished? If Christ, who really is the the creator of the world, if he was made to be sin in our place, what could I ever add to that? What could I, in this sinful flesh, ever add to what Christ accomplished? And if what Christ did wasn't enough, then how, how can I, how could I ever fill in the part that wasn't enough in what Christ did? But, but praise be to God that what Christ did was enough. Uh, here in Romans chapter 4, You see, it says in verse 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. If you go out and work for something and and you're paid in return, that wasn't grace that you received. That was debt. Somebody owed it to you because you did the work. But verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, it doesn't say to him who works a little. It doesn't say who, to him who works as hard as he can. To him who works, you know, just, just to, to make up what Christ didn't accomplish or whatever. It says to him that worketh not. It's, it's not that, when we talk about grace, it's not that, that, you know, works are diminished or that there's only a little bit of work involved. It's that there's no work involved whatsoever on the part of the, the believer. To him that worketh not. To him who doesn't work at all. You see, what religion does is religion says, you go out there and work as hard as you can, try as hard as you can, and then Christ, sort of, his, his sacrifice sort of uh, you know, makes up for what you couldn't do. Makes up for the, the, you know, the work you couldn't do. But that's not what this says. It doesn't say who, to him who works as hard as he can, Christ makes up the difference. It says, to him that worketh not, but believeth. Now, that tells you a couple things. First of all, it tells you that believing is not a work. Because it says you can be not working and yet still be believing. And so belief is not a work. Belief is not a work that you do to earn eternal life. I'm, I'm convinced that there are some 
people, uh, some professing Christians, who believe that their faith saved them in the sense that their faith is what made them worthy of eternal life. And you don't find that in Scripture. Uh, Faith is not something you do in order to gain, you know, in order to earn eternal life, right? It says, to him that worketh not, but believeth. In fact, what the Scripture says is that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The only way you have the ability to believe is because of the power that's in the Word of God. That's what, that's what allows you to be able to believe the Gospel. Uh, you know, a person on their own, without, a, without God working through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, uh, a person on their own, not only would they never, never know to believe the Gospel, because you wouldn't know it without the Word of God, but you wouldn't have any ability to, to believe it if you did. But there's power in the Word of God. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so, when you hear that message of the gospel, there is power. It's the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. And so, you don't, you don't work to believe. Some people are trying to work up faith. Like, if I work up enough faith, then I'll be saved. But faith isn't something you work. It's not something you do. You see, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, on God, that justifieth the ungodly. You know what the word justify means? It means to declare righteous. Now, it's easy to, to declare somebody who's godly as righteous, right? You look at them, you see they're godly, and you can declare them as righteous, right? And, and their works would reflect that. But God justifies the ungodly. Because somebody who's already godly, they don't need to be justified by God. Of course, the reality is that we already come into this world with a sin nature that makes us ungodly. Right? And the only way somebody gets to be godly is in the way that this verse describes. God justifies the ungodly on the basis of what Christ accomplished. On the basis of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, God can say of the ungodly sinner, I declare you as righteous because you believe what Christ did and because of what Christ accomplished. Um, You see, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. His faith, that faith of that that individual who believes, who doesn't work, but believes, his faith is counted, it's reckoned, it's, it's accounted by God for righteousness. And the only way that that can be possible is because of what Christ did there on the cross of Calvary, that he was made to be sin for us, And you see that offer of eternal life that's there in the gospel. When you receive the gift of eternal life by faith, what's true of Christ becomes true of you because God sees you in him. And so if Christ is righteous, God sees you as righteous if you're in him. If Christ is holy, God sees you as holy because you're in him. If Christ is seated in heavenly places, God sees you as seated in heavenly places, not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is and because you're in him. And uh, what, a, you know, what a, a great work that God wrought in Christ in that death. And of course, in his resurrection as well, you know that Christ is not bearing that sin today. He's not still made to be sin right now today because Christ rose from the dead and he rose no longer bearing that sin. It was put away. It's been done away. And every sin of yours and mine was paid for by Christ 2,000 years ago. It was buried and it was put away, done away with. Sin isn't the issue with God today as far as a person's relationship with God. Um, the, the issue as far as God is concerned is Christ has made this payment on your behalf. What do you do with Christ? And, uh, though, you know, I, I encourage you, if you're here this morning 
and you don't know that you have eternal life, or maybe you know that you don't have eternal life. Maybe as you hear these things, you know that you're not in Christ. You know that you haven't accepted that payment that Christ made on, on your behalf. Realize there's salvation in that gospel. And it's hard to give up works. It's hard if you've been working to, you know, to try and, and purchase some kind of, of uh, position with God. It's hard to, to uh, give up on those things and just accept the finished work of Christ. But that's the only place where there's any hope. And those works that, that people do to try and earn their way to, to a relationship with God are, are useless. They're dead works. They don't, they don't get you anywhere. But you see what it says, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Just like those Israelites in the wilderness, when they got bit by that serpent, there was no work they could do to change their condition and realize sin will bite you just like that serpent bit them. There was nothing they could do to save their life. They were going to die, and yet God instructs Moses to set up this serpent, this symbol of the judgment of God, this symbol of sin, and when they would look at it in faith, they would be healed. They wouldn't, they wouldn't die. They, they would be given life instead of death. What a powerful picture. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.